1: It's Tuesday, February 27, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Wall Street Journal had an excellent article the other day about crime and cartels in Mexico. Mexico's hugs-not-bullet crime policy spreads grief, murder, and extortion. Drug cartels have more towns and families in their grip under a presidential policy intended to quell gang violence by emphasizing public aid over policing. I think this has been underreported. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, gets a lot of positive attention, or he did when he tangled with Trump, but less attention overall on how he dealt with the cartels. He was less confrontational. He endorsed more engagement. There were fewer arrests. There were fewer interdictions. And the results? Well, it seems like a real disaster. This is the Wall Street Journal Main news section, front page, not the opinion page. Quote, organized crime groups operating in 29% of Mexico's municipalities in 2020, according to estimates by the International Crisis Group. That compares with 16% in 2017, the year Lopez Obrador took office. Then there were arrests of cartel members. They've fallen by 87% during Lopez Obrador's tenure. But the cartels have expanded. The murder of government officials by gangs is up 73% as arrests are down. Yeah, 355 Mexican officials, candidates, and political party members were murdered in 2023. Murders overall, I should say, have gone down nationwide. But many of the experts say that's because the cartels are able to operate more freely, so there's not as many turf wars, enough turf and customers to go around without quite so much inter-cartel murder. So I'm a little shocked that the Hugs Not Bullets policy isn't being decried north of the border, given that it fits conservative memes of Mexican lawlessness and the cost of police pullback. But I'm also a little shocked by the name of the policy, Hugs, not bullets. Now, as soon as I read that, I said it has to sound much better in the original Spanish. And indeed, it does. Abrazos. No balazos. See, I think if abrazos no balazos was presented to me, I might find it so delightful that I'd endorse it, maybe until the first year's worth of statistics were revealed. It is a good slogan, abrazos no balazos. but it is a terrible policy. And as a rule, it is a terrible policy because it is such a snappy slogan. I've said this time and time and again, but when you craft public policy based on idioms or rhymes, you are creating a disaster. Remember the three strikes you're outlaw? I mean, that's not a rhyme. It is an idiom, but it was a terrible public policy. But, you know, here's a counter argument. Baseball. And then I remember when John Kerry was campaigning. Oh, even before he was campaigning for president, he was asked about affirmative action. He said something pretty popular at the time. I believe in mend it, don't end it. I guess that seemed prudent, but it was really just a way to evade answering the question. You know, this isn't a policy. It's a product. But I maintain that the only reason soap on a rope exists is because it rhymes. I think we need to, if any of my listeners speak languages where soap does not rhyme with rope, because sopa and ropa do rhyme in Spanish, let me know if they have that product in those countries that speak those non-soapy, ropey languages. On the show today, I shall get into the non-committed vote in Michigan. But first, Steve call is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author of a new book The Achilles Trap Saddam Hussein the CIA and the Origins of America's Invasions of Iraq. We will discuss what really happened in the lead up to our post 9/11 invasion of Iraq. Call got his hands on the recordings of Saddam's inner sanctum. He has the transcripts. He has talked to all the experts and Steve Call is up next. Mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein was toppled by a precise military operation. This followed one of the most bungled intelligence operations lasting decades that you could ever imagine. And it wasn't just the United States who didn't understand what Saddam Hussein was up to. Saddam Hussein, a master of subterfuge and mystery, created such an air of uncertainty that was unclear at times that even he knew what was going on and if this served his purpose. It's all chronicled expertly, fascinatingly, and with never-before-released secret tapes in the new book, The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the Origins of America's Invasions of Iraq. Steve call Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Ghost Wars, wrote it, as always, unbelievably ably. Steve, welcome back to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. appreciate it. How'd you find out
2: about these tapes? You know, I I honestly can't remember. I think a colleague of mine mentioned that they existed, and uh, then I started looking around uh, for a new project, and I had long wondered about Saddam's side of the story, Um, and so that i started looking for them and i found that they had been um released for a period of time or some of them had been and then withdrawn and none were currently available and so that was where the the detective work began
1: yeah uncertainty about the uh, origins of an intelligence asset that's pretty characteristic of this whole tale so as i read the book i mean we could start anywhere and you of course chronicle the bath party and him riding in on tanks in 1968 and it's all important for context but i think to uh american listeners they what they want to know is uh this war that was pursued under incorrect assumptions the basis for that or the main concern was saddam hussein's pursuit of the nuclear weapon program i mean without that there wouldn't have been a war in
2: iraq right i agree with that i think you know he had also used chemical weapons openly including against his own people turned out he also had a biological weapons program but it was the nuke that understandably frightened everybody Right. And the Reagan administration knew about the uh, the
1: gassing of uh, the Kurds and others. And by the way, his own people, he wouldn't identify them as his own people. Yeah, right? no, that's fair. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, Saddam dis- or the his administration dismissed this as insecticide. And that had been going on for a while. And that was certainly that gave pause to the international community. But it didn't really represent the threat
2: that a plausible nuclear program did. Right. I think that's right. Um, And you could see it in the rhetoric that led up to the invasion. There was a strong emphasis on the threat of a nuclear bomb, especially after 9-11. Yeah. So who within, let's
1: look at it this way and break it down this way. We as Americans know a lot about what our leaders presented to us. And then in the aftermath of that, so much of that became uh, questioned. What did Saddam Hussein himself know about his own nuclear program at the time?
2: I think he had a pretty good handle on it, although, as you say, he built such a hall of mirrors around him with his secret services that even he had doubts about what might be going on that he didn't know about. And he sometimes asked, is there anything going on that I don't know about? But um, essentially, he um, authorized in secret a bomb building program. In 1981, he found a physicist who was kind of an Oppenheimer of Iraq and recruited him into the project it proceeded in secret without being detected for uh, basically a decade and it was only discovered after the first gulf war when george hw bush organized a coalition to expel iraqi troops from kuwait after they'd invaded the country and in the aftermath of that the un passed a big disarmament resolution inspectors came in and they saw that oh my they found a bomb program in its advanced stages and that shocked the world um saddam was supposed to dismantle the program uh he now we know did under inspections but there were always doubts and then uh in 1998 he threw the inspectors out so in the five years before um 2003 when the invasion began there was nobody on the ground to confirm whether or not he had gotten this thing gotten his band back together So why did Saddam, if he wasn't and knew he wasn't actually pursuing a weapons
1: program, what would be in his, let's call it rational self-interest, to kick out the weapons
2: inspectors? Well, he thought by that point that he wasn't going to get any credit for cooperation, and he was probably right. I mean, uh, Madeleine Albright, who was Bill Clinton's secretary of state, gave a speech in November, I think it was, of 1997, in which she basically announced uh, he can cooperate with the inspectors all he wants. He can disarm, but we're not going to relieve him of sanctions and pressure until he's gone because he's just too dangerous. And once he heard that, you can see in the tapes, uh, because he was talking with his comrades continuously about these dilemmas. Um, he basically says, we can have, in, we can have inspections and pressure, um, without, uh, you know, inspectors on the ground, or we can have it with them on the ground. So why don't we just get rid of them? Because the outcome is going to be the same. So that was, that's interesting,
1: because you get, you delve into uh, his own personality and everything we think we know about Saddam's vaingloriousness. It's true, but times 10. There seems to be an element of uh, humiliation in these sanctions, and maybe even M- Madeleine Albright is a woman issuing these uh, decrees that so um, incensed him that it actually worked against United States self-interest if what we wanted was compliance.
2: I think that's right. I mean, it might have been difficult to find a path that he would have ever found acceptable, but the constant calling him out and humiliating him definitely aggravated him. We can see what he, how he reacted in private to that. Um, you know, he, Look, he. Give me an example. Give me an example of one of his rantings or what he would say to, to Tariq Aziz or someone. Well, I mean, they would just uh, they would just rant about the Bushes uh, when the when George W. Bush was elected. He had a whole meeting. The Bushes are back. We know what that means. Uh, trouble, oil, um, imperialism. It's all coming our way. And right. um, he would constantly think out loud about American politics. He didn't have a super accurate grasp of uh, our political system or the probabilities of different election outcomes but he he was very shrewd about power who had it how it worked and he was especially shrewd about american power and he felt that he had to stand up against it but also that he had to manage it and so he was um very careful even as he was very bombastic and i think that was one of the things we missed about him that he really was deterrable he, he could sound crazy, but if you told him you're going to lose everything, if you do X, he would not do X.
1: Yeah. And another thing related to the Bushes is he very much understood the familial patterns of revenge and um, kind of crazy bellicose sons. He got that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> to- to- totally. Uh, yeah. Families in power, that was kind of his world.
1: Yeah. Uh, the Uday parts, it, it, so like I just said, Saddam was uh, – whatever we thought he was, times 10. Uday was times 20. His, uh, what was the phrase you used? His menacing insouciance, which belied, no, it didn't belied, which betrayed that deep down, he was, he was just a
2: one-man crime spree that Saddam could not contain. Yeah, he really drove his father uh, crazy, almost killed his father. In fact, one of the ironies, when you look back on the whole history with the benefit of all the new information, is that The CIA was continually trying to foment a coup and an assassination of Saddam from 1991 until 2003. But the one human being who came closest to killing him was his son, Uday, who showed up in a rage one afternoon with an AK-47 calling his father out and You know, some other relatives intervened. He shot the guns at their feet. Then he burst into tears. Then he went into the living room and Saddam said to his half brother after the episode, it's just a good thing I didn't have my pistol 20 minutes ago because I would have killed him. And yeah, it was, I mean,
1: Uday was always armed. What did he, uh, shoot his uncle and stuff him in a trunk and (laughs) they had to amputate (laughs) his leg and shot. He was, he was, he was Truly a menace. And so it does make you wonder psychologically. Saddam was a strong man. He kept everyone under his thumb, but he couldn't do it with his son or his sons. What does that say? What does that
2: lead us to conclude? I mean, he could only rule through his family, so he couldn't live with them and he couldn't live without them. He felt that he could trust his closest blood relatives not to uh, seize power from him, not to kill him. I mean, obviously, in the history of the world, that isn't always true, but he felt it was a better bet than... Um, generals with tanks who he didn't have blood ties to. And so he kept the generals at a great distance, treated them with great suspicion, had them continually under surveillance, but he needed some people who would actually do the work of watching out for the dangers. And so that that was his son-in-law, his sons, his half-brothers and others. So Saddam's a little bit Logan Roy and a little bit Tony Soprano. That's really Exactly. That's totally, yeah. that is, and, and I, during the pandemic, I was working on this book and I rewatched The Sopranos while I was inside Saddam's head listening to these tapes. And I was like, oh my God, that's him. Uh, that's, that is very much him.
1: I even wonder at some point if David Chase didn't knowingly or unknowingly get some inspiration <laughs> from the Saddam story and put it in some plot points of The Sopranos. Yeah. Um, so I do want to, I mean, this is the main thrust of the book, how the U.S. got so much intelligence wrong. Well, at one point uh, in our conversation just a moment ago, you said they always tried to foment a coup. There is a really mixed history of, I'm not even speaking morally, I'm just speaking effectively about these efforts. Why did the CIA think that it was possible? And if you can, does the CIA, from your reporting, your, your knowledge, does it still pursue these sorts of actions with uh, foreign heads of states who are meddlesome to our interests?
2: I mean, lethal actions ordered by the president of various kinds definitely still go on. Um, whether they are currently targeting any world leader, I don't know, but I wouldn't be um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised in a couple of cases that there's authority to do that if you right. have an opportunity um, the Yeah. So I think in Saddam's case, uh, the CIA was pretty much always reluctant about the mission um, when George H.W. Bush um, sent the first order over um telling the cia to start creating conditions to remove saddam and to use lethal force if necessary then the the head of the near east division the cia who received the instruction basically said i don't think this is going to work i'm not excited about this and he ended slow rolled it for a while mostly just worked on radio stations and other things around the edges and uh there were other periods where station chiefs in the region and other Um, action-oriented officers really did make a run at it, Um, but they found that Saddam was just too hard of a target. He lived in survival mode. He had a massive layered secret police force. He was very disciplined about not using the telephone, about constantly rotating his bodyguards. He just made it hard, and uh, they couldn't quite get to him. Only, as we were talking about earlier, his innermost family could have a reliable access to him. So it just didn't work. And by the end, when a guy named, a very colorful character named Luis Rueda, who is a, um, the son of a of a refugee from the Bay of Pigs who grew up in New York and then went into his father's business, but he, he said, I'm an American citizen because of a failed covert action. So I'm not like that enthusiastic about them, <laughs> but he was a very bright guy. And he he basically went into George W. Bush fairly early on and said, uh we we cannot you cannot count on a coup i mean yes we'll keep alert if we see an opportunity we'll take it we have the authorities but that don't plan on that and and in some ways that may that fed into the logic of a full-scale invasion because all of the silver bullets were basically ruled out even by the the cia right right how
1: convinced was the American intelligence apparatus that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction or was very could could have them very
2: quickly uh, pretty close to one hundred percent convinced um there you know if you look back on some of the documents that are now declassified, you can get various qualifications and you know nine out of ten eight out of ten, and that 's how intelligence analysts professionally do their work they speak in degrees of certainty but in the spectrum of intelligence um, sort of judgments, these were highly certain. And they were backed by the consensus among Western allies, uh, intelligence services in Britain, Um, even Germany, which was adamantly opposed to the invasion, their intelligence service thought he had the stuff. Um, So it wasn't a fact finding, um, you know, sort of debate, except within certain technical areas.
1: How convinced was Saddam that America thought he didn't have a nuclear weapons
2: program? He believed the CIA knew that he had destroyed his weapons because, like a lot of leaders in the world, he thought the CIA was omniscient and that they were constantly gaming uh, and targeting him. And that because they knew that he had secretly destroyed all of his weapons in 1991, then the accusations that he still possessed the weapons were just a pretense it was all part of a game uh, to put pressure on him possibly to invade him although he was doubtful that the americans would even invade right up until the last few months because he had seen the americans make these threats throughout the 1990s and all that had really happened were one day two day airstrikes uh, some cruise missiles right he would rebuild his buildings and get on with his life and he thought that was because the United States was too averse to taking casualties to actually mount a ground invasion.
1: Okay, we're going to put a pin in our conversation right there. And tomorrow, Steve Cobb will be back to talk more about his new book, The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the origins of America's invasion of Iraq. Don't miss that. And now the spiel, a movement in Michigan to make a statement. They've got some great branding, an extremely catchy name, as Detroit 4 News reports. With early voting underway in Michigan's presidential primary, a group is calling on Democrats to vote uncommitted instead of for President Biden.
0: It's all in protest over the White House's handling of the war in Gaza.
1: Uncommitted. What better word or concept to capture the idea that I'm a Democrat, but I disapprove of Joe Biden. Yes, I know somewhere Dean Phillips is saying me, Dean Phillips, is a much better way to express that sentiment. That is my Dean Phillips's entire point. Dean Phillips is like the romantic suitor who sees his rival stumble and fall off a cliff and thinks, OK, I'm in. And then he is informed by his intended that she's opted for a life of celibacy instead. Oh, um, a convent? The nunnery? No, no, just celibacy. The Michigan Democrats are opting for a tactic more potent than any of that, and I wonder how big a factor it will be. I have a bias, I admit. My bias is towards tight political races, or at least exciting drama out of political races. I like the excitement. I shall admit it. So does everyone else in the media. They want something to report on. So, I guess I am predisposed to give a lot of credit to the idea that Michigan really could reject Joe Biden. It is, after all, the state with the largest, or at least as a percentage the largest Arab and Muslim population. That's quite a grounds, a potential grounds for a rebuke of the president. And you know, if even an appreciable portion of the vote goes to uncommitted, it will be covered. Hell, Biden beating no one, essentially, got big coverage in South Carolina. Sorry, once more, I said no one. Dean Phillips did finish in third place. Did you know Marianne Williamson beat him in South Carolina? Anyway, James Clyburn was on CNN, and he wasn't asked about the 96% of the vote that Biden did get, he was asked to read into the meaning of turnout in a contest where there were no stakes. Clyburn was asked if the 126,000 to 2,000 victory was large enough, and he took the question pretty seriously. And my hope was uh, I've said anything from 100 one time
0: to 150, and I think I may have said one time from 150 uh, to 200, but I knew one thing, it'll be somewhere between uh,
1: 20 and 35% of what it was the last time. So even a lopsided result in Michigan will be covered, will be picked over, will be read into. I have in fact seen a lot, lot, lot of coverage about uncommitted. And no, it's not that I'm getting it confused with all the polyamory stories in New York Magazine. The Michigan uncommitted movement. Washington Post headline, Michigan's Arabs and Muslims push to defeat Joe Biden in critical state. New York Times, Biden faces uncommitted vote in Michigan's primary A protest vote against President Biden's policies on Israel will show the extent of Democratic divisions. Chicago defender, President Biden faces critical challenge in Michigan primary uncommitted vote campaign. And of course, it's all over TV news, even to the locals. Here's Fox Detroit. And instead of voting for incumbent President Joe Biden, instead vote un committed. And in doing so, they hope that they will be sending a message to the president that he should publicly support a ceasefire in Gaza. He actually does support a ceasefire, just one negotiated to Israel and Hamas's satisfaction. But overall, they make it seem like Uncommitted is a pretty serious movement. It's got legs. It's got possibility. As I said, Michigan has the largest Arab or Muslim population as a percentage of the population overall. They have the second largest, just terms of sheer numbers after California's 300,000. So let's hear what uncommitted is committed to defining as a victory.
0: Well, I'm just curious, does this group listen to Michigan have a goal in mind in terms of uncommitted votes?
1: Kimberly, they're hoping to get 20,000 uncommitted votes, at least 20,000. You may recall in 2016, that election here in Michigan was decided by 10,000 votes. So every vote does make a difference, Kimberly. 10,000? Yeah, it was Trump's margin of victory in 2016. I don't see the relevance of that. It's half the size of the crowd at a Joe Louis Arena Detroit Red Wings hockey game. I know they don't play there anymore. But still, that's how much the the Joe held. How does it matter as a signal in 2024? 10,000 is... A grand three and a half percent of the Muslim or Arab population. I get the thing where you set expectations so low that you could say you beat them. But 10,000 in a state with 8.2 million voters that are registered by party in Michigan. I'd say there's uh, about 4 million Democrats in Michigan. If you could peel away 10,000 of them, let me say, and this is a technical analysis. Right. So as we said, Trump won. This seems to be a big point. Trump won by 10,000 in 2016. But Biden won by 150,000 in 2020. Don't you think you need to deliver at least 75,000 votes to plausibly say, ha-ha, if we defect, you're going to lose? Okay, maybe 75,000, especially in low turnout. That's very high. But 50,000 would really assert that you're a threat. Here's another data point in 2020 when there was an actual primary between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Uh, 1.4 million voted in the presidential primary. So if you get 10,000 to vote for uncommitted, you've got less than 1% of that last primary total. I don't think that's so successful. Also, here's another way to think about it. Remember I said it was between Biden and Sanders. I lied a little. Michael Bloomberg got 73,000 votes. So if you're going to have a standard of people voting for things that can't ever happen since Bloomberg was out by then, you could say, you got to be Bloomberg, don't you? Tulsi Gabbard hadn't dropped out. She got 9,461 votes. So is the uncommitted team going to round up and say, hey, we got Tulsi Gabbard numbers. Let's call it a victory. All right. I get it, I get it. It's political organizing 101 or 102, those low expectations. I have to say 10,000 is way too low. But at what point is the exercise I did for myself mentally, and now I'm sharing it with you, that is the just difference. You don't even have to subscribe. But what would indicate that Joe Biden really is in trouble? On the one hand, There's no reason to come out and vote in this primary. Joe Biden is clearly going to win. So if you're a committed activist, you're, I think, much more motivated to show up and show your displeasure. So I don't really, I'll factor that in, but at some point I got to say, okay, that's a decent enough total, here was my rule of thumb. Nikki Haley has been getting 40% of the Republican vote, meaning 40% of the Republicans don't vote for the guy who's gonna be the Republican nominee, Trump. If 40% of the Democrats in this case don't vote for Joe Biden, I would say, that is big. Anything under 30, I'm not that impressed. I don't know, 25, I guess you gotta grapple with it. I would say, that if uncommitted gets 20 to 40% of the vote, I won't be bowled over, but the media will, they'll play it as a big deal. And, you know, it will at least be a little exciting for a day, except to Joe Biden. I do think this is all a good exercise. I think once in a while, you have to say these things beforehand, put down a marker, not just give yourself over to post ad hoc reasoning. So that's why I've shown my work here in this space. In other words, give a bit of a commitment to my thinking on Uncommitted. <laughs> and that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise, go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. oomproo do thanks for listening.